prayer. And then um, Bob wanted to mention a few things from last week to finish up some loose ends. And then we'll begin. So let's just open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a lovely day. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us your word and that you have not left us in darkness, but you've given us special revelations so that we may know who you are, what you have required of us, and the great hope and promises that we have. We pray, Lord, as we look at this final installment in Revelation 12, that we would be convinced that Satan's war will not prevail, but that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that you would instill this deep in our heart for the troubling days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to begin just by having Bob wanted to mention a few things from last week just to tie up some loose ends. And one of them, Bob, was a... It was both you and I had misquoted. We had the wrong verse. It was Joel 2.28, not Joel 2.32, when we're talking about the women who are prophesying, the daughters of Philip. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So we just wanted to get that out there. So so what? it was Joel 2.28 and not 2.32. Joel, yeah. Joel. Joel 2.28. And Peter announced the fulfillment of that in Acts 2. So we were finishing the Philip narrative, and I mentioned that the next time Philip is mentioned in Acts is in Acts 21. In Acts 21, we have something that used to seem a little odd to me, but now I understand why it's there. And that's Acts 21, and... uh, Let me find the verse here. Verse 8. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Verse 9. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, what I mentioned last week, and I think this is a good reading, this shows toward the end of Acts that what Peter announced in Acts 2 is happening. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. And so Philip's daughters are doing what Joel predicted in Joel 2.28. But it also said he had four virgin daughters. (coughs) So yesterday... I was contemplating why that's an important thing for us to know. Well, because all the way back, remember Luke Acts? In back in Luke 1, another virgin prophesied, and that was Mary. The Holy Spirit came upon her, and she spoke out, and what Mary spoke... (coughs) Starting... In Luke one forty six, excuse me, she declared the mighty deeds of God. Wow. Now, I mentioned last week that that's fulfilled in the priesthood of every believer. Amen. In 1 Peter 2, and I believe verse 9, that all believers will have the Holy Spirit and proclaim the mighty deeds of God. Wow. And prophesying isn't just giving new information, but it's proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. Hmm. So Mary proclaimed the mighty deeds of God. Philip's four daughters, who were virgins, they proclaimed the mighty deeds of God. And all believers the sons and daughters, yeah. will proclaim the mighty deeds of God, 1 amen. Peter 2, 9. Wow. And that's my reading. Yeah, amen. Free coffee. <laughs> I, I, I thought I might get it, so I already got the yeah, coffee. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, it's exciting to see these connections, and it's fun to tie up some of these loose ends. And you know what's real, real fun is Bob has been studying this. He's seeing connections for all these years that he studied it, and it's becoming more clear the beautiful connections between Luke and Acts. And to see it as a really a two-volume set that should be read together is, to me, very exciting. So thank you for that, Bob. Well, 
As you can see, we're in Revelation 12. We're going to finish that chapter this week, and we'll be getting into chapter 13 next week. I want to remind you of where we left off last time with Satan being cast down. And so we had, we had studied this passage. We had it up on the screen, but I want to just reiterate this to get us kind of into the swing of what this chapter was about. So let's read this once again. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. John wrote this. He says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, notice in the red where it says in verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down. What we did is we wrestled with, when did that happen? That's really the $64,000 question to interpret this passage. Was Satan thrown down prior to the fall of Adam? Is that what John is inferring? Or was he thrown down after the work of the cross by Christ at his first advent? Or is Satan thrown down in the future 70th, 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years? And what we decided was that it has to be the latter. That is, this being thrown down has to happen in the future, 70th week of Daniel, for two reasons. Number one, we know according to Revelation 12.6 that we just read, Revelation 12.14 and Revelation 13.5, that this is all tied to the last three and a half years, the 42 months, the time, times, and uh, half a time. All of it's being used to describe the same thing. The last three and a half years, the great tribulation period. So for that reason, we know that this being thrown down is in the future. Another reason we know it is, remember what I have in the box there? Michael and his angels are waging war against the dragon. What's that an allusion to? It's back to Daniel 12, isn't it? Daniel 12, where Michael the archangel would stand and fight for Israel. And that's tied to the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. So for those two reasons, we know that the expulsion of Satan isn't now. It didn't happen in the past, but it's still in the future. All right, now there's ramifications. And so you and I, oh, and by the way, again, another passage. Uh, Jesus alludes to the fact that Satan will be thrown down in the future here, I think in John 12, 31. Notice he says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. Notice he isn't saying he is being cast out. He was cast out. There's a future tense verb, he will be cast out. And I think that ties into exactly our viewpoint that this is still yet future. Now, I have a diagram that kind of shows the trajectory after the cross for both Christ and Satan. So what I want to do is I want to show you the significance of the cross, but I also want you to see that the downthrow of Satan comes in stages. But let's begin with Christ. First of all, remember we said that Christ, as soon as he's crucified... He, of course, provides atonement. He, it was the last opportunity in which he could have sinned, so he dies forever the godly one. But we also know that his exaltation begins right away. Why? Because he's buried with the rich. And if you were buried with the wealthy, that was a sign of being exalted. We saw that prophesied in Isaiah 53, 9, that you have the shocking twist in Isaiah 53 where he's numbered among the transgressions, this coming Messiah, but he's buried with the wealthy? How could he be buried with the wealthy and exalted this man who was numbered among the transgressions? That's shocking to the reader. You and I don't think of it that way because we don't think being buried with the wealthy really matters. But in the culture of that day, it did. And so we see his exaltation beginning right away with his burial with the wealthy. Well, of course, it gets better, doesn't it? He overcomes the grave itself. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again in John chapter 10. So he's raised from the dead. We see then he ascends on high. He's seated at the right hand of God, fulfilling Psalm 110.1, the most prolifically quoted Old Testament verse in the New. Psalm 110.1, Jesus fulfills that. Seated at the right hand of God, but it, does, it gets even better. One day he's coming back at his parousia and is going to reign not just in the heavens, but over the earth as well. And that's why Jesus said in his great prayer in Matthew 6, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? It's going to be both. So Jesus is going to reign. Now, let's contrast that then with Satan. As soon as Jesus wins his victory on the cross and dies, 
Satan and his forces are disarmed. Now, I want to look at a verse that discusses that. And so, if you will, please turn your Bibles to Colossians 2.15. I'm going to do somewhat of a full palm. I'm going to read 2.15, and I'm going to back up one verse to 2.14. So, let me begin in 2.15. Again, Colossians 2.15. I want to show you how Satan and the forces that are aligned with him were, in fact, disarmed by Christ's work on the cross. Notice here in Colossians 2.15, if everyone's turned there, it says that he was disarming the rulers and authorities. It says he, that's Jesus, has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay, so stop right there. What does it mean that these rulers and authorities were disarmed? Well, it means that they no longer have any weaponry that they can bring to bear against the people of God. I don't think that Paul is inferring that they don't have any weaponry to bear against God. They never did. So this is aimed towards the people of God. And if the rulers and authorities that are aligned with Satan are disarmed, it happened at the cross. Now, notice one verse earlier in Colossians 2.14. You have a participle. It says, having canceled out, notice it says the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Now, stop there. What would the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us be? It'd be the Mosaic Law. Now, let's tie that to our study in Romans. What did the Mosaic Law show all of humanity? That none of us can live up to God's holy standard, that all of us have missed it. Let's make a greater to lesser argument. If the greater elect people, Israel, couldn't obey the greatest expression of God's moral will, the Mosaic Law, how much less would the Gentiles fare in obedience? That's how the law condemns both Jews and Gentiles. So the law comes in and it stands as a condemnatory decree against us. And Satan uses it saying, none of you have lived up to it. And so we stand condemned. But the imagery here, notice it says in Colossians 2.14, it says, this was hostile to us, this decree, but it says he has taken it out of the way, having what? Having nailed it to the cross. So Jesus takes the decree against us, nails it to the cross, and says it's paid in full. So now what accusation can Satan bring? Well, he can bring him, but it doesn't matter because the debt's been paid. So that's what happened at the cross. Now, does that mean that Satan was expelled from heaven? No. We're reading into, I think, what Paul is saying in Colossians 2 if we read that into the text. So you and I... In Revelation 12, are seeing a progress, a progressive, progressive judgment upon Satan, and that's going to happen still in the future. And that's why we see Satan's forces will be thrown down. That's in the future 70th week of Daniel. When you get to Revelation 20, he's bound. Satan is for a thousand years. So what? So that he can't deceive the nations. Now let's stop there. Is Satan deceiving the nations now? Well, you bet. <laughs> so that can't be happening now after the cross, right? But it will one day. Well, then remember after a thousand years in Revelation 20, he's let out for a short time to deceive the nations one last time for the battle of Gog and Magog, and they come against Jerusalem again. And then Jesus calls down fire upon them and wipes them out. Well, then Satan and all the other enemies of God are thrown where? They're into the lake of fire. So again, after the cross, Christ just goes up, up, and up. Satan just goes down, down, and down. Think of the cross as the inauguration of the messianic age. Okay, that's the inauguration. Let me pull up my pointer. We have the inauguration of the messianic age here, but the consummation doesn't happen until his parousia. So it's very interesting is when you look at what happens to Satan, he's disarmed at the inauguration at the first advent of Christ, but he's thrown down. He's bound for a thousand years and he's thrown into the lake of fire all at the parousia, at the second advent or the consummation of the age. Does that make sense? So those are the stages that we are looking at. All right? Now, with that, does anybody have any questions or comments? We'll move on. My laser pointer put away. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. We like bunny trails. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Hold on. We'll get it on. We'll get it on tape. 
um, prior to the cross, can you give us a perspective of Satan uh, inhabiting the earth, the fall, the temptation of Christ? That side of the cross. Yeah, before the, you, the coming of the cross. Absolutely. Right. So he's at work prior to the cross. He accuses the brethren. In a sense, the accusations have merit because there's been no payment, although I think God in his omniscience looks forward to the day of the cross. But he certainly is trying to tempt Christ. He's trying to destroy the seed promise. He's trying to prevent this disarming from happening. And so he's trying to prevent altogether the messianic seed from ever coming about. And that's why we looked at that summary slide a few weeks ago where we saw all the way from the beginning of Genesis, Satan is trying to wipe out the seed promise. So the point being is if you destroy Israel, who do you lose in Egypt? Well, you lose the Messiah because the Messiah comes from Israel. And that's why Hosea Hosea 11.1, the prophet says, out of Egypt I called my son. It's very significant that Israel survives in order to have the Messiah. So certainly Satan's at work. And he has access to the heavenly realm where he makes accusations. The access to the heavenly realm continues even after the cross, but now the debt's been paid. But in the future 70th week of Daniel, he will no longer have access to the throne, no longer being able to make those accusations. And so that's a huge shift. It's not tolerated in the heavenly realm anymore, and he's thrown down to earth. So does that help clarify the... Yeah, okay. Yeah, Gail. Eric, can I ask you, um, when does the war between Michael and his angels with the dragon begin? Has that been happening since the Old Testament, or did it happen at the cross? No, I would say that that's um, in Daniel 12, when you look at it, it's tied to the last days. And the reason why, in fact, let's turn to it, just so we all see it. Sorry, I get so many pages in my Bible or pieces of paper, I'll probably drop everything here, but I should probably get a folder. I would probably work out for a guy like me. All right. Daniel 12. We'll just start in verse 1. Um, and by the way, I'm sorry. Uh, let me just back up a little bit. In Daniel 11:36, all the way to the end of Daniel 11, that's a depiction of what Antichrist does. And the reason we know that is because none of the descriptions from Daniel 11:36 through the rest of the chapter line up with any other historical figure including Antiochus Epiphanes IV, okay? So right there from Daniel 11.36 all the way to the end, we're talking about this future Antichrist. And notice how then it's tied into Daniel 12.1. At that time shall arise Michael the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. Now stop there. What did Jesus say about the future time? He said there will be tribulation such as the world has never seen nor ever will. So remember, we can't have the worstest. You only have one worst time period, right? And it hasn't happened yet, so it must be in the future. Therefore, we know he's talking about the future. Does everyone see the logic there? All right. Well, then notice he says, he ties it to the resurrection. He says, but at that time, your people will be delivered. That's Israel. Everyone whose name is found written in the book... Everyone whose name is found written in the book, he says, and many, this is verse 2, of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, there's the resurrection, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who rise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now, stop there. We're talking about the resurrection. So again, this places everything in the future. Notice he tells them to shut up this information till the time of the end. John is asked not to conceal the book. Why? Because we're in the end. In Daniel's day, they're not in the last days. The last days begin with the first advent of Christ. So John, when he's writing Revelation, is asked to do the opposite of Daniel. He reveals where Daniel conceals. Keep going. Notice he says, verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two other men on one bank of the stream and one on the bank of the stream. I'm sorry, and this, on one side of the bank and the other one's on the other side. Verse 6, it says, And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Verse 7, I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the stars, excuse me, above the waters in the stream 
He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times, and half a time. So there's your three and a half years, right? So in verse 1, when we tie that in Daniel 12, when does Michael the archangel stand up uh, for the people? Well, it's the last three and a half years. That's what I'm tying together. Does that make sense? So that's why, that's why I'm making a big deal. Let me just show you why I'm doing this. Notice the box that I have on the screen. Everyone see the box? That's what I'm saying is that's a reference back to Daniel 12.1. Daniel 12.1 and Daniel 12.7 are tied together. Daniel 12.7 mentions the last three and a half years. Therefore, we know that this being thrown down has to do with that time period. Does that make sense? Good. Is that clear with everyone, the connections that I'm making there? Hopefully. Okay. All right. You know, at uh, our conference up in Saskatchewan, I got accused of being data dauma. Too much data. So I apologize if there's too much data. But we have to see the evidence to say, okay, I'm convinced now that this being thrown down is in the future. It's not something that's occurred in the past. So I hope everyone's convinced of that fact. So with that, let's move on. And we see a proleptic scene in heaven now. And I don't think we covered this last time. Revelation 12, 10 through 11, John continues. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom are of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Now, what's so interesting is here we begin a song, and this song of praise is elicited by the expulsion of Satan from the heavenly realm. And so in this song, there are three stanzas. The first one we see in verse 10, it's a proleptic look at the arrival of the kingdom of God and Christ's authority. When you get to verse 11, you see a stanza that has to do with the victory of the saints by the blood of the Lamb. Well, then you get to verse 12, and that'll be on the next Uh, the next slide that we get into when we get back to this. We see a celebration in heaven, but woe to those who are on the earth. So we're actually reading a song. And again, it's the song is elicited because Satan has been expelled. Now, the first thing, notice he says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And you and I have to wrestle with have come because as we read, Revelation 12, has Christ's kingdom fully come? Well, no, it doesn't come until chapter 19. So again, we're seeing what's called prolepsis. The singers in heaven are singing of something that's about to occur as if it's already occurred because it's so assured. Wow, that that rhymed. (laughs) I didn't intend that. A poet, but I don't know it. But if he showed, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, it's, it's so assured they can speak as if it's already occurred, okay? That's prolepsis. And that's what Bob was saying. I like your example. Give that again, Bob, of prolepsis. Now, this is false prolepsis, but talk about what they would say in the presidential campaign. Well, if you watch the conventions that happen before any votes are cast for president, for example, in 2012... <clears throat> We present to you the next president of the United States, Mitt Romney. There you go. But didn't when, happen. <laughs> yeah, my point is, when God says it, it does happen. Right, amen. Now, that's prolepsis by man, but they may be wrong. Exactly. That's I just right. thought of another one, yeah. talking about John yeah. and Revelation. Is in John, early in John, um, you see that with John... The Baptist, who sees Jesus, it says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He speaks as if it's already occurred. Yeah, it happens at the cross. But John uses prolepsis. Now, John had the Holy Spirit, and that was God speaking through him. And when God gives us a prolepsis, it will happen. And often we're expected to live... With that in mind, that what God says, his promises cannot fail, God cannot lie, and that's why we tell people, live 
according to the promises of God. Amen. Wow, great application. And so when John says, Behold the Lamb of God, anybody that heard that would be wise to attach themselves to Christ yeah, exactly. and listen to him. Well said. And the reason I think, um, Eric. I don't want to actually, this is on the subject. Yeah. Um, you know, when we talk to people and they say, well, how do you interpret the Bible? Yeah. And I can't remember the technical term, but it's the literal grammatical uh, meaning of the Bible. In other words, yeah. uh, liberals like to criticize and say, oh, you guys are fundamentalists. Uh, people like to use labels and stuff. Sure. But but what we're doing here is we're, we're looking at the literal grammatical and the, and so you have to look at it with an understanding of of exactly. the language and what's being done. I think that's a fair thing to say, isn't it? Well said. Um, we're trying to do what we're trying to do in interpretation is we're trying to bridge what's called the hermeneutic gap. Now think if there's a gap between what the author wrote and what we as the audience understand. And the way to bridge that gap is through understanding the historical context and understanding the grammar. And so if we understand the grammar and the context. What we're trying to do is then use that to decipher what has the author said. And so when we talk about a literal interpretation, what we really mean is an authorial intended interpretation. What did the author intend to say? And so what we're using is the simple rules of grammar, how the different writers use various figures of speech, how they use grammar, how they uh, wrote in context of the day. And that's what we're trying to discern so we can understand what they've said. Ultimately, they're inspired by God, and therefore we're understanding the very mind of God. But that's our whole goal is to get back to what has the author said. If you and I understand what Paul is saying or what John is saying or what Peter's saying, we're understanding what God is saying. Yeah, well said. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, now prolapsus is very important through the book of Revelation. If you're ever reading it and you see a have come and you say, well, that doesn't seem to line up with the time frame that I know, you're probably dealing with a proleptic aorist, very common in the book of Revelation, okay? Now, notice it says here that the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, and of course, that is Satan, and it says he's the one who accuses them before our God day and night. So, dear ones, I want you to think about what John is saying there. Satan is depicted as being in the heavenly realm, making accusations against you and me and all other believers. Notice he says it's the accuser of our brethren, so this isn't just regular people that are outside of Christ. These are believers. And so day and night he makes accusations against us. But what did we learn when we read Colossians 2, 14 through 15? That at the cross, those accusations have been, have been disarmed. Why? Because the certificate and decrees that were against us were nailed to the cross and they were paid in full. And so he can make all the accusations he wants. They're just not going to be, they're not going to be fulfilled or have any merit to them. God won't listen to it. And who else do we have in heaven who is working on our behalf? Jesus, our great high priest who lives to make constant intercession for us. So I picture this resurrected Christ standing or sitting at the right hand of God. And he is living in his very resurrection presence is a reminder in heaven that our debt's been paid, that you and I belong not to some dead man, not to some religion of the past, but to the resurrected Lord. That's who you and I belong to. And so therefore, none of the accusations stick. But nonetheless, isn't it joyful to know that in verse 11, it states that it's been overcome by his blood, that you and I see it just outright again here in the text. I think that's beautiful. Now, yeah, Bob. Um, quick comment on they overcame him by the blood. Yeah. In my lifetime as a Christian since 1971, this passage has been misused. Yeah, we're going to talk about that exactly. Oh, yeah. I don't want to... No, no, that's it. good. To bring it up. That's okay. beautiful. Just about anything that happens in the Gospels and Acts, false teachers will turn into a technique. Yes, exactly. Okay. Jesus healed the demoniac. Oh, we learned from that you have to know the name of the demon or it won't go right. wrong. Right. So that's technology. That's uh, shamanism. Well, this one, 
I saw this happen where somebody was having a demonic manifestation. Yeah. And a bunch of Christians would literally pin them on the ground and shout, the blood, the blood, the blood. And then there'd be a reaction to it. I even saw one time where they got on a guy and open your eyes and look at us. He wouldn't do it. So they force his eye open. The blood, the blood, the blood. Yeah. Yeah. And and the manifestations would get worse. And because the manifestations were happening more vigorously when they shouted the blood, they thought they were doing some good. (laughs) And this probably still goes on. In fact, I know it does. Well, later, when I actually started just studying the Scripture, I realized when Satan accuses us, the ground that he has is that we really are sinners. Yeah. Okay? And we really have rebelled against God. And we really do deserve hell. And we really are uh, lost without Christ. And that's his accusation. The way you overcome with the blood isn't by a technique of using blood like it's a magic word. I went to a little Bible study I was sent to teach in Wisconsin when I was a, like a sophomore in Bible college as a new Christian. It was in this little old farmhouse. They had, as you walked in their door, these reflective letters you can buy for your mailbox. Yeah. Going up, across, down. It said blood, blood, blood. They thought mm-hmm. by having blood in mailbox letters... <laughs> Uh, it would keep the demons out of their house. Sure. Okay, so here's why I say that. Uh, beloved, all of us, if we just go to our default mode, are pagans. Yes. All pagans believe in techniques to manipulate the spirit world. There, there's a certain utterance, a certain object, a certain location, a certain whatever is the key. But the Bible teaches that it's about relationship and faith, that we know Jesus Christ by faith. His blood was the literal blood he shed on the cross, which denotes his laid-down life. And the way we overcome the accusations, because we do get accusations, is that my sins are forgiven. Amen. That's right. Jesus, that's why this is part of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. My sins are forgiven. Jesus laid down his life to save me. I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm in Christ. Amen. That's what it does mean. The word blood. Now, but they were thinking, well, why, why did we get all those manifestations? Well, because Satan is playing games with you. And keeping you from believing what the blood really signifies. Amen. Well said, Bob. And I think that's so important because we sing, like, for instance, the song, There's Power in the Blood. And we have to realize that when we use blood and we see it in the scripture, it's used as what's called a synecdoche. Now, what's a synecdoche? Well, I think I, I, think I spelled it right. I don't have spell check with my pen, but I think that's right. A synecdoche means that one part can be used to refer to the whole. So the blood, therefore, would be a reference to the substitutionary death of Christ in whole, as a whole. So if I said, um, if I said play ball, we're going to play ball. That's just one part of baseball, isn't it? There's bats and there's bases and fences and umpires and stuff. But ball is a synecdoche because it refers to the whole. Okay? So we don't sing songs like there's power in the ball, there's power in the ball. But there is power in the blood in the sense that the blood refers to the whole substitutionary death of Christ. When Jesus died, he died the sinless one on behalf of us who are sinful. That's the idea. So don't get trapped into the idea of some sort of metaphysics behind the blood of Christ as if it's a magical property. No, it's a synecdoche which refers to the entirety of Christ's death. So thank you for pointing that out, Bob. Very good. Um, so anyway, synecdoche. There's, we'll leave that on the board in case you feel like writing that down. <laughs> All right. The data. The data, exactly, the data. Now, one thing I want to point out here is, again, Satan's been thrown down. He's no longer going to be able to accuse us before God day and night. But I think that there's 
a little bit of an application for us here, and that's a warning against legalism. Who is Satan? Well, he's the accuser of the brethren. What do legalists often do in churches? They accuse the brethren. Okay, now let's just think about this for just a moment. If Satan accuses the brethren and he's thrown down, what's the risk for those who line up with him? Well, one day they're going to be thrown down with him. It's a very serious thing to be a legalist. Now, what do I mean by legalist? A legalist is one who engages in what we would define as false binding. Now, what is binding and loosing? Well, we can read about it in places like Matthew 18. Binding and loosing in the scriptures has to do with what you are bound to do morally or what you are loose or free to do. In the rabbinic age, if you were bound to something, you were morally obligated to either do something or not do something. Well, the terms for the Christian's binding and loosing are found within what? The new covenant, the writings of Christ and his apostles. Okay, now let's take a legalist. They're not satisfied with Christ being the lawgiver. They want to become the lawgiver. And so they come up with laws that were never intended by God or by Christ, and they falsely bind believers to them. For example, you can't watch TV. Now, where in the scriptures does it say, thus saith the Lord, you shall not watch TV? Well, it doesn't. But the legalist will say, if you don't, you're a lesser Christian, and they stand, therefore, with Satan as the accuser of the brethren. Now, the reason I want to show you this passage and how we can use this against legalists is because so many times I've seen in the evangelical world, evangelicals can spot sin if a man or woman cheats on their spouse, and that's wonderful. But when the legalist comes in and destroys a whole assembly and stands with the accuser falsely against the brethren and falsely binds them to things that God never bound them to, evangelicals are largely unable to spot that. And they'll just think, well, this person's just zealous for holiness. No, they're not zealous for holiness. They're standing with Satan. That's what they're doing. Why? Because they're falsely binding people, and they're therefore standing as the lawgiver rather than Christ. Who's the lawgiver? Is it Christ or is it the legalist? Where it's Christ. Now, let me show you another passage that ties into the risk of lining up with the accuser. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. This is a passage that Bob and I discovered really the significance of it as we were working together on radio. And I think it's one that we should connect here to Revelation 12. And this, by the way, if you want a little packet to use against legalists, Revelation 12 and James 4, 11 through 12. I think it'll give you some good ammunition to use with legalists that you may have to confront. James 4, 11 through 12. Listen to what James said. He comes into a new section here where he's talking about being humble and how to act towards one another as brothers and sisters. Notice he says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Now stop there. This idea of speaking against a brother or sister would be akin to making allegations to say somehow they have violated God's law when in fact they haven't, or to pronounce a judgment in which they are certain of the eternal destiny of a brother and sister, which is contrary to the truth. Now, keep going. Notice he says they judge the law. Now, what's the problem with judging the law? Well, God's, that's God's law. And ultimately, we're under what? The law of Christ, the new covenant. So if you're judging the law, you're actually judging the lawgiver. You're standing in judgment over Christ himself. Notice he says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Notice in James 4.12, James says there's one lawgiver. Who is our one lawgiver? Jesus Christ. So if someone comes in the assembly, and we had a church disciplinary issue over that, where we had a couple who was saying, no, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do this, you have to do that, and they became the lawgiver. They became the lawgiver, and they violated this very thing. They were standing in judgment over the lawgiver, and therefore were sinning against Christ, and they were lined up with the accuser in Revelation chapter 12. Listen to what the great scholar, this K.A. Richardson, says about this passage in James. He says, quote, Instead of the divine measure of judgment in the word of God, 
The slanderer establishes his or her own measure and finds a brother lacking, worthy of rejection. Judging makes presumptive statement about the destiny of persons or their works as a whole that really only God can make, unquote. So what's the ultimate standard? It's the Word of God, not any false lawgiver. And so, dear ones, we have to realize that those who make accusations falsely against brothers and say, you're bound to do this, when it's not in Scripture, they're lining up with Satan, the the accuser of the brethren. Yeah. Um, To put uh, this, again, another bunny trail, but uh, if if you continue in that verse 12 at the end, it says... I mean, and I, I constantly get this from my Catholic brothers yeah. who say, who are you to judge another? Uh, can you put that into some perspective? Yeah, very well said. This, this comes, in fact, we were just talking about this, this passage at lunch this past week. It's Matthew 7, verses 1 through 3. You can look at those. But there, it's the only passage that most left-wing Christians know, and they only know a part of it. It's judge not. So you'll give the gospel to somebody. You'll say, you know, you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. You need Christ. And they'll say, well, judge not. And what you have to do is to say, okay, please finish the rest of the verse. Because Jesus goes on to say, judge not lest you be judged, for in the same measure you judge, it will be judged unto you. So Jesus in Matthew 7, 1 through 3, is not prohibiting all judgment, but he's prohibiting hypocritical judgment. Does everyone see that? Because in the same measure you measure to others, it'll be measured to you. So, for example, if you were out witnessing to someone and you said, listen, you wretched sinner, I'm a swell person, you need Christ, I don't, that would be hypocritical judgment because you're judging yourself differently and holding yourself to a different standard than them. But when you and I are witnessing, you and I are saying, look, I'm a wretched sinner who found the bread of life and therefore I had my sins atoned they're removed and I have the righteousness of Christ and you need that as well. That's not hypocritical judgment. Why? Because we're using the same standard of measure. So the point being, Peter, is when you're giving the same measure of standard to yourself and to others, which is the scripture, that's not hypocritical judgment. Okay, I understand that, but yep. to me it almost seems like there's an equivocation. Hey, we're all sinners, so get off my back. Don't point out my faults. Yeah, and we're not denying that, that that's not the issue. The issue at hand is, yes, we're all sinners. It's like saying, can you imagine two men drowning and one gets in the lifeboat, right? One's in the lifeboat and the other guy says, well, boy, you're so judgmental. We're all drowning. Well, yeah, but I'm in the lifeboat. You need to be in the lifeboat, <laughs> right? That's what we're saying is, yes, we were both drowning, but I'm in the lifeboat and you're not. You should get in the lifeboat. So... That's the idea. We always hold, so the whole idea not to violate that standard that Jesus lays out is hold ourselves to the same standard that we're holding others to. And we certainly are doing that in gospel proclamation. Exactly. Yeah, well said. So, yeah, thank you. I I just want to mention, um, years ago, this kept coming up, so I wrote a CIC article on it. Oh, okay, good. I can't remember what issue. But I did a fairly comprehensive sta- uh, study yeah. of judgment in the New Testament, the Greek words and all of that. And I'll just give you the conclusion. We cannot judge what we cannot know. Yeah. But we must judge what we do know. Amen. Okay. So to Peter's example, the question is, can we know the terms of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. Yes, yes or no? Yes. And we say yes because they're revealed. Amen. <laughs> Can we know the secrets and motivations of men's hearts? Nope. No. It's not revealed. Okay? The heart, we don't know those things. So if you take all the passages, try to understand them all, it boils down to What's revealed, what can be known, what's not revealed, what's not known. But we like to judge what we can't know, and that's bad. Right. Okay. But then we fail to judge what we can know. So people were saying, you can't correct false teaching. You're a sinner because you're (laughs) judging when you correct false teaching. Well, let's just apply what we know. Can you know what true teaching is? 
Yes or no? Yes. Yes, it's revealed. Can you know what violates Scripture and true teaching? Yes, yes that can be known too. So since you can know it, you can judge it. Amen. And so we can say such and such is a false teaching because that it is, is revealed in Scripture. Amen. We're not making ourselves the lawgiver. We're learning from the one who really is the lawgiver, Christ. Amen. Well said. Thank you, Bob. Very good categories. Yeah. Yeah, Paul. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yep. Okay, yeah. To go, I was reading this morning from Zechariah, the 8th chapter, starting the 16th verse. Um, These things you are to do, speak the truth to each other, and render true and sound judgment. So that kind of goes along with what you just said. Yeah, but yeah. my original question actually goes back to James. And uh, we did have that uh, issue, which I certainly agree. Yeah. We're amongst uh, a congregation, and they were... They were hardened against what we were all about, and yeah. so a judgment had to be made, and so therefore it was made. Yeah. Now, what happens if you're on the street and you're talking with somebody who's apparently a Christian, you know, but they're really off the wall about what they're doing? Does that mean we do not associate with them anymore, or does that mean we associate them, but we try to share what we know? Yeah, you know, it's hard to define because uh, defining what, we mean by off the wall um, is off the wall unbiblical. Well, then we have to question either whether or not they're a believer to begin with. Um, they may be a believer in something, but it may not be the true gospel. Um, so, yeah, I, what I always do is err on the side of giving the gospel and giving the truth, be long-suffering, contend for the faith once we're all handed down to the saints. As Bob was just saying, one thing we don't know is the motives of men's hearts. That's why even Paul says he doesn't even examine himself. But the Lord will reveal the motives and the, intents of the, the intent of the heart. So oftentimes when we're on the street and we only have a snapshot of the person's life, just err on the side of being long-suffering, giving the gospel, letting the scriptures work. Because we know that the, according to Isaiah 55, God's word does not return void. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So that's what I would do. Now, if you have more evidence that this person claims to be a Christian and they're living in sin, now you've got a whole new Bollywick, so to speak. But um, for the snapshot that you have on the street, I would just err on giving the gospel, being long-suffering, and trying to correct error, contend for the faith. Yeah, yep, that's what I would do. Yeah, Eric. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, that one verse that's in First uh, Corinthians at the end of 5 where it says, don't associate with one that calls himself a brother. Yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, you know, on the street we don't, you know, if they call himself a brother, yeah, we're not to, uh, you know, sit down and eat with them and call him friend. But it doesn't say we can't, you know, share, share the truth, you know, judge. It does well say, that, you know, to judge our brothers and, to, you know, and to let them know, well, this is sin that you're, you know, you call, you know, whatever it is that they're saying. But Well said, yeah. Eric. Yeah, very well said and a good passage to bring out. First Corinthians 5, exactly. Yeah, Eric, the other Eric. Yeah, I just, this is Eric the Old. <laughs> I just I just wanted to kind of sort of pig, piggyback on what Eric the Young just said. Sure, yeah. And that is, you know, you just point people to the Bible and say, you know, I, I don't think it says this in the Bible. That's, right. that's about the best thing we can do, I think, usually. Good advice, amen. And, and then let them argue with the Bible rather than with me. Right, right, exactly. That's the issue. Very well said, yes. Thank you both Eric's. Thank you. Yeah, don't shoot the messenger, right? Yeah, very good. So um, so anyway, this is a lesson I think we don't want to line up with the accuser or their brethren. That's what legalists do. Why do legalists do it? Because they make accusations against brothers and sisters, binding them to things that they haven't bound. So that's a warning here. Now, notice in verse 11, Bob mentioned that they overcame them by the blood of the Lamb. We talked about synecdoche. The blood really represents the finished work of Christ. But this is what you see over and over in the book of Revelation. Remember? In the early chapters, we see a message given to the seven churches, and routinely it says, he who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit, you know, at my right side. Or However, he, seven times he gives that promise to all churches. He who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who overcomes is going to be glorified in heaven with Christ, right? That's the idea. Well, this is how you overcome. You overcome not by being good enough, not by your own works, but by what? By the blood of the Lamb. Okay, so if you're looking for an answer to how are you an overcomer when John is writing that to the seven churches, here you have the answer. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John 5, 4 through 5. I know Bob will be coming to this at some point in the study. 
1 John 5, 4 through 5. And this is a great answer to those who are convinced that you must work in order to be saved, and that's what overcoming means. Here, 1 John 5, 4 through 5 declares what overcoming is. John says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So by faith, you and I have the imputed righteousness of Christ. We have our sins removed once and for all, and therefore we've overcome. Now, as we say that, do overcomers obey Christ? Yes. That's not the the root or the cause of our justification, but it is an outflow of those who are justified. The analogy I would make, and think about this passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10 of Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship, that's God's, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So notice in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, justification is by faith alone, and even that faith is a gift of God. But in verse 10, we're created in the sphere of Christ, in this union with Christ, for the purpose of good works. So the analogy I like to use is think of your salvation like an engine. What drives, the, think of it as a vehicle. What drives your salvation is the engine of faith. So how are you justified? My engine of faith. But if your engine is on, it necessarily produces exhaust. That's the works. So the point is, if you don't have works, you don't have exhaust, you don't have the engine of faith. That's the idea in Scripture. So that's why so many times, like when you read the Old Testament, the Israelites are rebuked for their lack of obedience. But their lack of obedience, they don't have exhaust, which is evidence that they don't have an engine on. They don't have faith. So faith and obedience are wrapped together in that way. Faith is always what justifies, but works are always evidence. Uh, The obedience is the evidence of that faith. Yeah. So would it be correct to say that one proceeds from the other? Exactly right. So faith is always primary unless we believe. And, you know, you and I know that inherently. We don't sit in a chair unless we believe it will hold us. Our actions are dependent on what we believe. We always act on what we really believe. That's why Bob, for years, has taught us what? Believe in the promises of God. So if you believe in the promises of God, you say, you know what? I think the best is yet to come. I think that there's a glorious future and resurrection and a kingdom, and therefore you persevere and you shy away from sin. You, you, you flee from it. But if you stop believing the promises of God, what do you start doing? You say, you know, I'm going to get all I can here and now. I'm not sure if any of that's going to happen. This is maybe all there is. And you start sinning. So that's why sanctification, as we've laid out time and time again, is what? It's a battle to believe. That's where the battle is. If you don't believe, you're not going to act on it. You act on what you believe. Yeah. So, uh, again, and again, I'm not trying to pick on my Catholic brothers, but I yeah. was one of them. Yeah. Uh, when they say to me that I, I get to my uh, engine through the exhaust, yes, that's a false uh, rendering of the gospel because, right. quite frankly, then their works, I mean, I always get the James thing, faith without works is dead, and I always say yes, but one proceeds from the other. Exactly, right. And so uh, when someone says to me that I get to my faith through my works, he's really distorting Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, isn't he? Exactly right. He's got the cart before the horse, so to speak. Exactly right. And the reason why our works can't justify is because they're imperfect. By definition, you and I are incompatible with a holy and righteous God. God expects perfection in our works, meaning it comes not only, not only are the works not deficient, but they come from the right motivations of perfect love for God and perfect love for man, loving our neighbors, ourself. Well, our motivations are never that pure. And that's why in Isaiah 64, he says, even our, our righteous deeds are like filthy, filthy rags. rags. Yeah, literally, and I hate to be, well, I'll just leave it at filthy rags. There's, Thank you. It's a very, Peter, there's a, yeah. a passage to keep in mind. John 6, 28, 29. Yeah, there you go. What can we do, they asked Jesus, to perform the works of God? So they asked him, 
What can we do? Answer. Verse 29. Jesus replied, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Amen. So, Catholics, you want to do the work of God? Believe in Christ. Amen. And believe what he says about himself and his finished work. And that salvation is a gift of grace and not of works. Well said. Thank you. Yeah. Second Thessalonians 1, who perishes but those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is to be obeyed. As Bob just pointed out from John six twenty nine. it's the first work that we must do to be pleasing to God. But ultimately, it's a work of God, isn't it? That we come to faith. Yeah. Just a comment. These are great verses. And I think as we witness to our Catholic brothers, instead of throwing them under the bus, we should take them to these verses and open their eyes out of love. Yeah. Well, yeah. well I, I have hope for my Catholic brothers, and I will choose to evangelize to them. So sure. a lot of them believe they are, and yet you have to unwind them and get them to Scripture. Right. So. Yeah, good advice, Peter. Thank you. Yep. I mean, I think, if I'm not mistaken, about half of our congregation has come from that faith tradition. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. in that. We could certainly call them friends, right? Friends. Yeah. Yep. Our friends, but not, uh, right, yeah. Not brothers and sisters in the sense of they've been justified. Yep. Well said. Okay, now, I guess we only have five minutes left. This is a great discussion. Thank you. And like Bob said, we're not in any hurry. We're not going anywhere, so we can go as fast or as slow as we want. So let's, um, let's continue on, though, to the next slide. Oh, one thing I want to point out is I want to talk about this three and a half years. I think we may have... Well, I can introduce it here. Israel, we're going to see, is protected for three and a half years. That's the Great Tribulation period. Listen to what it says, verses 12 through 14. It says, For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you dwell in them. Now, notice the contrast, rejoicing in heaven, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So dear ones, notice here, you have this great contrast. You have rejoicing in the heavens. But what do you have on earth? You have a woe. Why? Because Satan is being cast down. He no longer has access. And so because he knows his time is short, He's going to, in spades, be going after those who are dwelling upon the earth. Now, when it says the devil has been thrown down, having great wrath, the having there is what we call a modal participle. The idea is that this is his mindset as he descends. So that tips us off that he has great wrath. The term for wrath here, thumos, is slightly different than the normal term for wrath, which is orge. Orge, when it's used of God's wrath, is not a capricious wrath, not a wrath that is irrational, not a wrath in which God is merely flying off the handle because he's a mean-spirited being, but it is a reasoned wrath, a deserved wrath by those who have violated his holiness. But when it comes to the wrath here of Satan, thumos is used to really accentuate the fact that it is an irrational, self-centered fly-off-the-handle emotional kind of reaction. Okay, so that's one thing I want you to see is there is a distinction in the scriptures between the wrath of man, the wrath of creatures, and the wrath of God. God's wrath is not capricious. It's reasoned and it's deserved. Now, the reason you and I have to distinguish that is because the world can't distinguish those categories. To the world, all wrath is, a, is the same. Okay, so if anyone's wrathful, it's, it's evil. So, for example... Our world today can no longer distinguish between the wrath that a police officer puts upon a criminal and the criminal's wrath against a store owner. We saw that in Ferguson, Missouri. You have a criminal who roughs up a a store owner, assaults a police officer, and then the one who's ordained by God to restrain evil, according to Romans 13, puts the criminal down. And notice our society can't distinguish they say, well, you know, that criminal, that well, he was doing just fine, and look at how evil this police officer is. That's calling good evil and evil good. 
No, the wrath is different. And so when it comes to God's wrath, we have to realize that he is the God who is holy and righteous. And his righteousness means not only does he always act in accordance with his attributes, but he is the ultimate standard of right and wrong. And so when he acts in wrath, it's not unreasonable or irrational as it is with man and Satan that we see in Scripture. So that's one thing I want to distinguish. Now, with that, we'll come back to this slide, I promise, next time, and we'll start in. And we've got a lot of exciting things to get into before we get into chapter 13. So um, with that, but I saw a question back here. Did anyone? Yeah, Eric, or comment. I, I didn't want to go on another bunny trail because this has been great, though. These bunny trails are actually I love bunny very trails, good. Right? So um, I, I was thinking, you know, what you said, you know, there are uh, false moral equivalents. That's yes. what we're talking about in Ferguson. And, and right now we see so many methods of lie, lying yeah. and deception. Yeah. False moral equivalence is one of them. Right. And well exaggeration. Said. And, you know, we could go. That's a whole other probably six-hour study of, of deception. Yes. But what you could do is just read Rules for Radicals by Saul Olinsky, and, and you'll, you'll see all of them. Well said. By the way, he, he, I've got that book, and he actually dedicates it to Lucifer, who has been thrown down. <laughs> well said. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God of, of holy indignation, of righteousness and wrath, but also a God who is of mercy and grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you extend that to those who find your son Christ, that in Christ we can have the forgiveness of sins, the atonement, the imputed righteousness that we so need. We thank you, Lord, that you've overcome for us so that we can be spared all these things. And we thank you, Lord, that you're a God who's coming again to reign and rule. Uh, and even so, we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.